Good morning. It's good to see you this morning, and we want to welcome you to worship. Let's begin this morning as we get started. If you'll stand with me, we're going to sing together as an intro into worship, hymn number 302, Come Christians, Join to Sing. Stand with us if you're able, and let's sing. I hope you had a bulletin as you came in. There are several announcements we'd like to share before we uh, continue in worship. And so if you have a bulletin, I'll let you read a majority of those. Uh, but I do want to highlight just a couple things. Uh, we are starting back the men's Bible study. We have the women's Bible study. They'll be meeting here as well. They have already started, but they'll continue here at the church now on Wednesday evenings for the Isaiah study. And also the men's group is this week. And then this Saturday is the monthly men's Bible study. So, men, if you'll mark that, it's a busy week for us as we get back started. If you haven't signed up for the Bible study and would like to be a part of that, men, please let us know. Uh, it's open for you to come. We do have books that we follow through, and uh, you can read those on your own during the week and then come to share and study. So, please let us know. We'd always love to have you come and be a part of our study. I also want to remind you that this month we are taking nominations for deacons. The little green piece of paper is in the foyer. You'll see the elder box. If you have someone that you'd like to nominate, please just go back there on that green piece of paper. There's a spot for some names. Just write the names of the men that you think would make a great uh, deacon in our church. And that's what we're nominating right now as deacons. And uh, in the past, it said, go see them. But I, I made it easier on you. If you read the little paper now, it just says, fill the names in. So you don't even have to talk to anybody. Just nominate them. And if you mention them, they have to serve. That's the new rule. They, they, they have to do it. And uh, no, please pray about it. Write the names in, and we'll take those. And if you nominate someone who's not a member of the church, folks, we just won't follow up through that. If you nominate someone who chooses not to, we'll figure that out. But 
uh, we'll let you know, but this whole month we'll be taking those in. We also have some who are ready to train, so Pastor David is going to help for those who have already accepted. We have a few for elder and deacon, and so he's going to begin a time of studying with them and get them through training, and, uh, and then I'll begin the new member class. If you've asked, if you're one of those who've been coming and would like to be a part of our new member class, even if you decide not to join at the end of it, I'm going to do a four-week study that begins here in February, the last week, the 25th, and it'll take about four weeks, and I'll go through uh, what it is that makes our church who we are, uh, form and structure of our church, and how it works, and go through the membership vows and what that takes. And we'll spend some time together, and at the end, if you do want to join, we'll set up an opportunity with the session for you to come and share your testimony and be a part of our church. And if not, you don't have to join, but at least you will have gone through, understand more about our church, how it is that we work, and how it is that we can glorify God. And so we encourage you, at the end of that study, for those who want to, if there's still an interest, I'll continue on beyond the membership class and do either our presbytopia or what it means to be a faithful member and we'll spend several weeks going through what it is that we actually believe as a Presbyterian church. And so if you've never been a part of that and you'd like to see all the different aspects of what a, a church member does in a Presbyterian church and what it is that we believe and how it is that we practice, uh, then we'll spend some time doing that as well. But I'll be meeting here in the sanctuary uh, instead of the classrooms downstairs. So the 25th of February is when I plan to start that. So if you're interested, please let us know. Call the office, let me know, and uh, we'll have everything that you need ready and handouts for that new member class as well. And then other than that, the men's chorus is today right after Sunday school. So men, if you've been singing in the chorus, we'd love to have you. And so right after Sunday school, if you'll jump up here into the choir loft, we'll spend some time together in the chorus as well. Um, so lots going on uh, there that's in the church, lots of announcements coming, and so at this time, I'll let you read the, last, uh, the rest of them and let David come and call us to worship. Call to worship is printed for you in the bulletin this morning as we meet in the Lord's presence. He calls us to come together and uh, worship him. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Let us pray. Father, we come this hour to glorify and honor you, to lift up Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord, we know, Father, that wherever two or three are gathered in your name, that there you are in the midst. And so you meet with us this morning as we call upon you as our Savior and God, Maker and Lord, Father and Son and Holy Spirit. Bless all this hour to the glory of Jesus Christ, our Savior. All that we say and do, may it glorify him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we prepare our hearts for not only the worship hour, but also for coming together in communion, let us join together in confession of sin. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. 
For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. When we confess our sins, we have that assurance of pardon from the scriptures. Psalm 28, verse 6 and 7. Blessed be the Lord, for he has heard the voice of my pleas for mercy. The Lord is my strength and my shield. In him my heart trusts and I am helped. My heart exalts and with my song I will give thanks to him. Let us give thanks to him as you take your bulletins and we sing rejoice.
and you may be seated. And as we take a moment and go to the Lord in prayer, I want to invite you in just a moment to join me in the Lord's Prayer. If you need that, that is inside the red hymnal. There's a little platelet there printed with the Lord's Prayer that I will invite you to join me in as we pray. But let me take us to the throne of grace for a moment and uh, ask the Lord uh, to, to bless us. Heavenly Father, we come this morning just lifting up so much to you. We find that in our own strength and our own abilities, many of our hearts, longings and desires, hurts and discomforts go unfulfilled, unmanaged, and uncontrolled. We realize that the world offers us so many ways to find happiness and peace, yet they never last. The world offers us ways to find assurance and hope, and yet we're disappointed. Lord, we have so many times on our own strength tried to figure out what it is that your will for our life is. And yet it's in the times that we just sit and listen. And when we read your word and when we pray, that we realize your plan comes to fruition in your time and the way that you want it. Lord, help us to be obedient. This morning as we come together in worship, as we lift up our hearts and open our minds to you, Lord, we do ask that you'll be with our family. We have so many in our church who have been through tests, those who have been in the hospital and have had surgeries. We have those that are going through recovery and rehabilitation. Lord, we have those who are discerning your will as to how to serve and where to serve. Lord, we are so uncertain at times just what it is we're supposed to do or are called to do. And yet we find assurance every time we come together as you bring us together as one, that you unify our hearts and our minds, that we can serve together with each other, yoked together as one body. Lord, here this morning, I pray not only for these requests here in our church, that you administer to us, strengthen us, heal us. Lord, again, we pray for the sin around the world that manifests itself in so many ways whether it's in our government and the authorities that you've placed there, whether it's in the leaders of other countries, or whether it's in the lives of so many people who are hurting today under the oppression, suppression, even war. Lord, all of this we bring to you, knowing that we have not done one thing to earn the right to even ask. We haven't anything of our own merit that we could bring that would allow us to even request. And yet, Lord, we realize again in your scriptures, through your Holy Spirit, that you beckon us to come to the throne of grace, not on our own strength, but in the merits of your son, Jesus Christ. It was through his work that the veil was opened. It was torn asunder, that we could come into the holy place with you. And as a body, we could pray together as you taught us, saying, our Father, which art in heaven, Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. At this time, I would like to ask if the ushers would please come forward, and during this time, we'll have a, a special during the offering.
This song comes straight from Luke 2, starting at verse 25.
would join us in your bulletin as we prepare for the word, as we sing together, holy forever and near to the heart of God.
Amen. You may be seated, and thanks again to the choir and the musicians and everybody who helps us as we plan and prepare worship. And this morning, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Mark, where we have been studying all about discipleship. And it's a fast-paced book, challenging all of us to commit ourselves to Jesus Christ wholly and completely. And the first part of the book, we ran into a lot of stories and circumstances of explaining Jesus and himself. And then he quickly moves to the heart of the issue almost in every story about the importance of our relationship and our walk with him. And here this morning in chapter 10, we move, as you know, from the story of discipleship in the marriage to that with children and possessions. And he puts the two together. I want you to see that in our book, we divide things up in English. But here I want you to see the two stories as they come together on the importance of putting Jesus first. How is it that someone is to receive eternal life? It's the question that is obvious in the minds of many of those who are following, but it's amazing that none of them have actually asked, not even the disciples, that we get to a point here this morning when a man asks a question that even the disciples haven't asked yet. Maybe you haven't asked yet. Maybe you're to the point in your life where you've spent all your life busy and doing all the things that church does and that Christians does and that spiritual does and all these things that people does and you've never really asked the question, Lord, am I going to go to eternal life? Am I going to be able to be there with you? And so we find ourselves this morning listening to this question as we get it, well, who does get to go? Who gets to have eternal life? Listen to what Mark relates to us in the circumstance here as Jesus was blessing children in Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 13. And they were bringing children to him so that he would touch them, but the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw this, he was indignant, and he said to them, allow the children to come to me. Do not forbid them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. And he took them in his arms and he began blessing them, laying his hands on them. And as he was setting out on this journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what shall I do so that I may inherit eternal life. And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth. This is his response. Looking at him, Jesus showed love to him, and said to him, one thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasures in heaven, and come follow me. But he was deeply dismayed by these words, and he went away grieving, for he was one 
who owned much property. Man, the somber story is it begins, first of all, he comes excited about eternal life, and he leaves in a way that I hope this morning you never do. I hope that you find yourself in the same place at times that as you're growing into who it is and what it is that Jesus wants for your life, that you do not turn from the one who truly has the answers to everything you've been looking for. And that's what these stories come together about is that here we have children, and I know that they're different in parts of the world. Here in the West, it's a virtue on how we treat our children and how we raise them and what we expect of them. And we look at little children as being innocent, and they're as doves, and they would never harm anybody. And I don't know about your children, my children, it didn't take long to change that. In a family of eight, I think the smaller or the younger they are as they went along the line, man, the quicker they learn to fend for themselves. And to say things and do things. But we live in a world, but, but children are so precious. And folks, that's not true around the world. Even today, we live in parts of this world where children, depending on their sexuality, can determine whether they're worth keeping or not. And in a Jewish culture, the infant stage was just one of these things was just a time you had to put up with until you got to the age of an adult and that you could begin to represent yourself and be worth something. And so for these people to be bringing these children to Jesus, this was a change. It was a time in which even the disciples were like, why are you doing this? We're messing with the Messiah. We're messing with this one who's going to change the world. And you're bringing him these little children that don't really mean anything. They don't represent themselves. It's not about innocence. We told you this earlier. Be careful as you read through the text. For in the Western world, we want to say we should be like children and go to heaven because we should be innocent. And I want you to think about that. Do you really think the disciples can enter the kingdom of heaven by being innocent? That's not the analogy that's being made. Do you really think we could get to heaven by just being naive, having virtue? You see, the story is about we need to be like the children who are entering the kingdom. We need to be like they are. Innocence isn't what's going to get us there. Naivety isn't what's going to get us there. What is it that gets us there? How is it that we can go? How is it that we're supposed to be like these children? And so the disciples actually rebuke them. It's the word that is used actually, the same word used when they were using the word for exorcism in some of the people that came up. That's how he was rebuked. People were rebuking these people, bringing their children, no different than when Jesus would rebuke the demons. That's how they looked at this situation. And yet Jesus changes the whole understanding once again. He brings us to the point where now he's saying, look, guys, why are you doing this? And why would you send them away? Do not hinder these children. He was indignant. That's the word that is translated from agonic. It's the participle phrase, agontine, that is used as a promise of anger or displeasure. It's the only time in this passage that we get in the Gospels where this is said about Jesus. It's a type of indignation and upset anger that the disciples at this point still has not caught the fact that the kingdom of heaven is different than what we have on earth. That what is expected of those of us who follow Jesus Christ is different from those who follow the people of the world. It's a whole different understanding. And Jesus was indignant. He was angered at his own disciples who didn't understand what these people were doing. Bringing their children to be blessed. Isn't it amazing that Jesus commends these children as true heirs of the kingdom? 
Children who in this culture at many times were just bypassed right over, weren't cared about, didn't have a worth. And yet Jesus commends them as the kingdom is theirs. You may not realize this, but these little children, the word that is actually used for padilla, it's the word that we get for little children that is used, are for very young. If you were to read the book of Luke in his account, it is actually translated as infants. They're so small that as the story unfolds, Jesus puts them in his arms as he's blessing them. We're not talking about children coming up as young adults. We're not talking about toddlers running to Jesus and causing commotion. We're talking about parents bringing these little ones to Jesus in order that he would bless them. Now, you may not understand the history of this, but it's amazing that if what we're really looking at is these children in relation to heaven, it's not about their innocence or their virtue. It's about their helplessness. It's about the children who have nothing to bring, nothing to offer, and are helpless. And when we come to the kingdom of heaven, we must come like these children. We must come without our own virtue and without this appearance of innocence. We must come with a helplessness that we have nothing to offer, that we have nothing that we can contribute. And to be able to get into the kingdom of heaven must be the same as these children who would receive the blessing and freely and willingly take it knowing that it was a gift, offering nothing in return. And maybe you this morning realize for the first time that you're not cooperating with Jesus when it comes to your salvation. He's not helping you over the hump for you to take it the rest of the way. He's not encouraging you to get through the hard times so that you can finish it on your own. What he's saying even to his own disciples who are supposed to be following him is if you cannot come to me helplessly and without anything to offer and in complete need, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Mark's story puts it there. Exactly just what are the disciples not? You can't say it's about innocence and virtue because that's exactly what the disciples are not. That's not the comparison that's made here. Jesus is actually confronting his disciples. He's con confronting the followers. It's not about the people who are bringing Jesus their children. We begin to realize that he's blessing them. They're powerless. They've been overlooked. They've been uh, oppressed. These are the little ones that come to Jesus. No claim, no credit, no clout. They have nothing to bring. And Jesus said, such as these is the kingdom of God. Are you like a child coming to Jesus? Or did you come to Jesus because he needed you? You were gifted and able to contribute to the church and to help in its leadership and to provide for the kingdom. It was the vast gift that you have on your own that makes the church so much of a better place than other places. You have what it takes. You have the leadership skills. You have the charisma and the ability. It's such a blessing that God has you for his kingdom. Oh, you all feel that way, don't you? <laughs> but to come like children and to come helplessly, Nothing to offer, no clout whatsoever, and to realize that what it takes to get into the kingdom is to be completely selfless, is to realize that you are helpless. 
that you need somebody to help you, to bring you, to prepare you, and to make you ready. Oh, like these children, to receive grace on a sure readiness that would be a gift rather than our own merit. Oh, verse 15 has become a very powerful verse in church history. Whether you're in the Presbyterian side, reform circles of Calvin, or whether you've moved over to the earlier Augustinian and the debates that has raged for centuries, you realize that this is a passage that has been used in the whole discussion of infant baptism. It's shown up in the baptismal creeds that come throughout church history. Mark is used as they bring these children because these are infants coming to be blessed. And folks, if we're blessing the children because theirs is the kingdom, that's no different than the mark of baptism when we place on children. And it separates them and places them into the covenant promise that theirs is the kingdom as they come to fruition. And so baptism, no different than the blessing that Jesus gives, marks these for the kingdom of God. Oh, we must become like children. This correlation between the baptismal practices, statements, and liturgies, and to the words of Mark throughout history help us to remember that it's all about the blessing, and that he's blessing those that he's placing in his arms. No different than when, if you wish to say Noah, blessed Ham, Shem, and Jacob. Do you remember as the blessing was carried on from Isaac to Jacob and Esau? And as Jacob carried it down to his sons and to Joseph and to the grandsons, even do you remember the story where he crosses his hands on the grandsons? I believe Ephraim and Manasseh to say I know which the blessing comes. It's this understanding that the forgiveness is there. It's the expression of an unconditional love, preparing a love for those that the rest of society said was unwanted, undesired, and were needless. And once again, Jesus said, such theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Unconditional love. And so the story unfolds. You may not realize it, but it's about this love in the very next verses, we realize these possessions is what we call it, but it's about this unconditional love, a circumstance that Mark brings to us in this. Anything that would impede us from entering the kingdom of God must be getting rid of. Anything that would hinder these children from coming were angered in Jesus' heart, made him indignant. He pushed against that, told them never to hinder such a thing. And then he looks at the possessions in verse 17 and tells us on his journey, he immediately has a man that runs to him and calls him a good teacher. He knew he was lacking something. Do you see, as children, they have no idea. They come so helplessly, ready to receive and to come, nothing to offer. But as adults, we run to Jesus. And though we've done everything we thought we needed to do, and though we've accomplished all that was set before us, we still know we're lacking something. And this man comes running to Jesus, verse 17, falls down and kneels before him and says, oh, good teacher, 
And then the truth comes out. What must I do? Isn't it amazing as we have the rest of the story, you would have thought he has done everything needed. And yet he wants to know what more must he do? It's the typical thought of most of us, especially when we call somebody good. Have you ever called somebody good? How many of you have ever talked about somebody else and you said to them, oh, but he's really a good kid? Oh, I know they've been through a hard stuff, but he's really a good guy. I know everybody makes mistakes, but he's really a good person. Deep down in, they're really what? Yeah, and Jesus just confronts every one of us. Because we use that term, as you used to say, in a comparative sense. We comparatively use it all the time. Of course they're good. We could use it to our animals, our pets. I have such a good dog. And I'm not talking about his virtuous morality and his prayer life and his relationship with the Lord. But he's a good dog in comparison to what? All the other dogs. And so we do the same with human beings. Oh, he's such a good guy. And who are you comparing him to? All the other people? Compared to all the other people that lie, he's still a good person. Compared to everybody else who cheats, he's still a good guy. Compared to those who are lying, going before and doing sinful things, he's still a good guy. It's easy to be comparatively good when the standard that you're using are other people. I would even use the word great. He's such a great guy. But when we use the standard God gives us, we realize there is only one who is truly good. And this man falls before Jesus, asks him what he must do. Isn't this amazing how he undoes it in the law? He's a standard for righteousness, and God simply says to him, there is only one that's good. The law tells us that. The law was to lead us, right? It was a tutor to lead us to Christ. This guy has the law. He's been observing the law. He's talking about the tablets that we have before us. And listen, isn't this amazing that ultimately good is defined by the character of God? If we're going to compare ourselves and call anybody good, we ought to be comparing them not to each other, but to who? To God, to his righteousness, his character, the standard for righteousness. The problem is when we look at that standard, we find Romans chapter 3 is so true. Oh, there is none righteous. No, not even one. There is none good. We fall short. Like children, we find ourselves helpless and in need. How can I inherit eternal life. So he comes to him and he asks him what must he do? And Jesus cites immediately, listen to what he says. You know what someone must do. Isn't this amazing? Have you caught this? I know many writers have. When Jesus cites back to him the commandments, do you realize he's only citing the second tablet? He's only using the easy parts of the Ten Commandments. He hasn't talked about the first tablet yet. He just brings up the second tablet, all the things that deal with other people. He hasn't even mentioned the first tablet yet, the relationship we have with God. He simply says, well, don't you do all these things? He says, of course I do. I've done them since my youth. And so then God brings up the first tablet. Go and sell all that you have. It wasn't about his money. It was about the commandments on the first tablet. 
do you have any other gods before me? Oh, all of a sudden he realizes, wait a minute. I wasn't thinking about that one. I was doing good on all these others. And I bet it was reminded him, as so many of us, that if you fail at one point of the law, you're guilty of what? The whole law. I tell people all the time, if you live by the law, you what? And Jesus brings up the first tablet. All those on the second one, when he first asked them, that relates to everybody else. But when he brought up the relationship with God, now you realize why the man was falling short, why he was coming to Jesus in the first place. Because even in obeying the law and doing all these things to other people and living a good life and a good standard according to everybody else, he knew he was still lacking something. Within his own self, he knew this just this isn't enough. What must I do more? He wouldn't have come to Jesus if he didn't realize he had a shortcoming. But he realized all of his works together were not enough. And keeping everything on the second tablet left him needing so much more. In a nutshell, he thought his works were enough to bring him close to Jesus. And all of us realize it's no different than so many of us in our lives. James Kennedy from Coral Ridge years ago wrote the evangelism explosion. He was a several week long opportunity to learn how to share your faith and to share the gospel with others and to confront them with the truths. They've taken it and condensed it and made it in all kinds of things today. But he was known for the very first question that would come out, the introductory question as you met with people. And as you began to introduce yourself to someone and you got into the spiritual side, the question was this. If you were to die today and you were to appear before Jesus and he asked you, why should I let you into my kingdom? What would you say? And the hope and the prayer was that this person would say, well, because I am covered in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. I realized like a child that I was helpless. I had nothing on my own, no merit, no clout. I had nothing to give. I had no way of getting there. And I realized through the help of the Holy Spirit that I was a sinner. And I was comparing myself to everybody else. And compared to them, I was good. But in the eyes of Jesus, he knew my heart. He knew I wasn't obedient to the most important thing. I was never putting him first. I had things in my life that took precedence over him. And I realized I needed more. And I turned to Jesus Christ. I placed my faith in him. And when I did, he saved me. He promised I could have eternal life. Oh, that's not the answer we usually get, is it? Most of the time when someone asks that question, why should he let you in? Do you know what the average answer is? Well, because I'm a what? I'm a good person. I've lived a good life. I've done a lot of good things. I've helped a lot of people. I've never been a bad person. I read my Bible and I've gone to church and I've helped those that are in need. And man, you go down the entire second tablet of how perfect you are. And then you realize 
but have you put anything in your life before Jesus? Oh, okay, wait a minute. I mean, now you're talking about like commitment, right? Now you're talking about like discipleship, putting someone before me. Okay, wait a minute. What is it that you're expecting me to give up so that Jesus can be first? I don't have that for you. I know like most people, I was sharing with Amar the other night, I read a story, R.C. Sproul put it out from Ligonier. He was one of the leaders. He said when he first heard the question about how it is that you would get into heaven, he thought, well, you know what? I'll ask my own son that question because he was young at the time. So he went to his son and he said, son, if you were to die today and you stood before Jesus and he asked you why he should let you into his kingdom, what would you say? And he looked at his dad and he goes, duh, dad. I'd say, because I'm dead. And I thought, wow, that's why I get in. I died. Where do dead people go? That's what he was thinking. It's not a righteousness by faith, if you wish. It's a righteousness by death. All you have to do is live and what? Die. And if you just die, you go to heaven. That's just the normal understanding of people in the world. Good God's not going to send people to hell. He doesn't expect us all to be saved. He would never want that for anybody else. And he realized that now his own children were living in the standards of the world. Just be a good person. And when you die, you get to go to heaven. Is that where you are? Is that what your children believe? Have you even asked them? Have you ever took the time to simply say to your grown son, a chemist, 27 years old, married, oh, you've done so well. You're a deacon in the church. Your marriage is going well. Your careers are successful. But let me ask you something. If you were to die today, what would you say about getting into the kingdom of heaven? Well, Dad, when I die, have you ever discussed that with your children? Or did you just assume they know the right way? Oh, you talk about sadness when we realize we did not lead our children in that which was most precious. We taught them to grow up rather than to be like children and receive the kingdom. It's about discipleship. But Jesus showed love. Listen to what he said to him. We're told right here in Scripture, verse 21, he showed love to him. That's that word agape. You know the difference in the words. It doesn't matter. It's the unconditional love. Isn't this amazing that Jesus looked at him? I like how the New American Standard puts it. It's that word emblepane. It's the word that means that Jesus gazed into him. He went through him, if you wish. He looked inside him. He examined and scrutinized him. He looked beyond the outside efforts of all the things that he's accomplished, and he looked into his heart. And what in the world did Jesus see that would have him say he showed him? love I can't help but to think of Romans 5 when I'm reminded that when I am a sinner God demonstrated his what 
love. The compassion that Jesus saw for this individual, his earnest desire to want to be with him for eternal life, and he's lived a good standard, if you look at human standards. But what else do I need? And Jesus gazed into his heart, no different than he does yours. It's that glaring look that the Holy Spirit gives you when you realize you're wrong and you feel guilty and you've said what you shouldn't have said. You've done what you shouldn't have done. You've been where you shouldn't have been. And your life is a mess and you're acting like it's okay. And when you come to Jesus, he gazes right through you. He goes right to the heart of the matter and simply says, who is first in your life right now? A whole lot of the confusion and hurt that you're going through could be solved if you would just put me what? First. And so as Jesus gazed into him, he knows the man really wanted eternal life, that he needed the truth, and the truth could set him free, free from all this false assurance, free from all the uh, insecurities and needing more. He took him right to the first tablet. He took him right to the first commandment and wanted to know, all right, you want to know what it takes? Sell all you have. Folks, he's not talking to rich people. This isn't a general statement. Please know that if you're here today and you have lots of money, this isn't what your biggest problem might be. He was handling this man's possessions because his possessions, individually and personally, is what was keeping him from eternal life. Yours may not be money. Yours may be fame, popularity, other things. Whatever it is, he says to him, go and get rid of it and come follow me. No different than the other disciples. He'd examined him. He looked into his heart. He knew that money was his God. He knew that his priorities were in the wrong place. Just like these children who had lacked everything, and yet theirs was the kingdom of God. This man possessed everything and lacked the kingdom of God. He still lacked what was needed most. He needed to become like those children. The lesson that he just taught everybody else. You need to possess what truly matters, and you need to do something about it now. Don't wait. There's no substitute for Jesus. And unless your obedience to the law leads you to Jesus Christ, it's done you no good. The law was a tutor to lead us to Christ. If it doesn't lead you to Christ, you're further from heaven than ever before. Who gets to go? It's those who come to Jesus with nothing to offer. Like the children and like this man. What a change. He goes away and listen to the word. He was deeply dismayed. He was using this term that we get Stignatzein, it's the Greek word that he was appalled, shocked, devastated. He came to Jesus so assured that he would ask him what else he could do, and Jesus would probably say what? Nothing. You've done so well. I'm so proud of you. Well done, my good and faithful what? 
servant. And yet, he leaves so different. Comes so assured of his merits. And Jesus calls him beyond the safe haven, just like he did the other 12, who we are told left everything behind to follow Jesus Christ. It's amazing that you can live an exemplary life in the eyes of others and still be an idolater, still have something in the place of Jesus. In the eyes of others, exemplary. In the eyes of the Father, an idolater. The stories come together. As he walked away, think about this, folks. He walked away from Jesus, the pearl of great price, standing right before him, the answer to every problem he'd ever faced, to every situation, every insecurity, every frustration, every sin, every guilt, everything there, standing in his presence, telling him what he needs to do, and he walks away. Yeah, he did a lot in the law, but it wasn't enough to lead him to Christ. And so this morning, I ask you the same thing. Are you right in front of the pearl of great price? Has Jesus brought you to the point where you realize you too owe a debt? The amount of money you have can't pay it. All the money in the world is not enough. And yet you still put that first. You're still trusting your works, your efforts, your reputation, and your merits are going to change the requirements to enter heaven. And he walked away. He didn't have what it would take to pay his debt. And we're never told. How about you? How does yours end? You see, the gospel message is we all have a debt that we cannot pay. We all rely on our own righteousness, and it's not enough. Yet Jesus has paid the price. He's died in your place. He's given you his righteousness. There's only one thing left to do. What must you do to be saved? You must trust in his righteousness. Justification by faith not by death. You must come to Jesus Christ, place your faith in him, follow him, cast everything else aside, become like a child, helpless, nothing to bring, and receive the kingdom of God, eternal life, the free gift, the unconditional love of our Savior. And then you'll have eternal life. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your patience with me as I try to explain the gospel. Father, I pray that here this morning as we prepare our hearts to commune that we realize we have no merit. We have nothing. 
we find ourselves divided, confused, hurt, and frustrated because we think we've been offended, that we've been treated wrongly, that things aren't going the way we want them, that things should be better for us, that things weren't like we're planned. It's all about ourselves, our efforts and our merits. This morning, help us come like children. Help us like this man to turn away from everything else that's taking the place of putting you first and following you. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. As we come time to celebrate communion, we want to begin by our confession of faith. We've been sharing it. If you'd open your bulletin, we have an opportunity to confess our faith. We'll use this as we prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper. As we finish, I'll ask our servers to come forward. If you'll join me as we confess our faith, as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper together, the larger catechism says, should the Lord's Supper be withheld from anyone who professes the faith and wants to come to it, The sacrament should and must be withheld by the authority Christ has left in his church from those whose profession of faith is based on spiritual ignorance or whose lives have scandalized the church until they properly instructed and demonstrate by their behavior that they have reformed their lives. How must we receive the Lord's Supper when it is offered? In receiving the Lord's Supper when it is offered... We should reverently and attentively wait on God as we carefully observe the sacramental elements and their administration. We should take specific notice of the Lord's body and meditate freely on his death and suffering and so stir up in us a lively effect of God's spiritual gifts. We should critically examine ourselves and be sorry for our sins. We should earnestly hunger and thirst after Christ, feeding on him by faith, drawing from his fullness, trusting in his merit, rejoicing in his love, and giving thanks for his grace. We thereby renew our covenant with God and our love for fellow believer. Question 175 asks, what should we do after we have received the Lord's Supper? After receiving the Lord's Supper, we should think about our participation in the sacrament and whether we got anything out of it. If we have been spiritually renewed and comforted in that participation, we should bless God for it, pray for the effect to continue, watch out for the relapses, fulfill our vows, and be encouraged to take communion frequently. If, on the other hand, we have not received any immediate benefit from our participation, we should more carefully go over how we prepared for and participated in the sacrament. If this review reveals no fault in us before God in our own conscience, then we should wait for the spiritual fruit of participation to come to us in due time. However, if such a review finds us at fault in either preparing for or participating in the sacrament, we must humbly resolve to be more careful and diligent 
in the future. I'm going to ask our servers if they'll come. I want to invite everyone you can turn to. It is in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul writes to us and reminds us that as they gathered together to take communion, they gathered together to share the Lord's Supper. It is designed for those who've made a profession of faith. It's designed for those of us who have trusted in him. As Paul gathered together, he said, I received from the Lord, and when he had given thanks and broke it, he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And so as he took that bread with his disciples, and he broke it, and he said, this is my body broken for you. As often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. And so we this morning do the same thing by taking the trays and passing them out. We ask that you will please take one, pass the tray, and so that we can all participate together as we do. And while we do, we'll be singing together. Go ahead, you can start. We'll be singing in your bulletin the song, The Power of the Cross, the first two parts.
as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. The Lord Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, he took the bread and broke it, as we have done, eating, remembering that Christ has died for us. And then after they had supped, he took the cup, saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood, given for many for remission of sins. Drink ye all of it.
After they had supped, he took the cup, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood, <clears throat> given for many. Drink ye all of it. The Bible says that after they had supped, they sang a hymn. We'll close with our closing hymn, Tis So Sweet to Trust in Jesus, 679. <laughs> Receive now the benediction. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.